All right, well, if you have your Bibles, and we hope you do, will you please turn in them to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, as we wrap up our little series on enduring trials. And we're going to be looking at the first five verses here in Romans chapter 5. So I think it would be appropriate. Let's begin by reading them together. Therefore, having been justified by faith... We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we also have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance character, and character hope. Now hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit, who was given to us. God makes it clear that it's not if we will ever experience trials or tribulations, but when we will experience trials and tribulations. I don't know how else to say it, but as a Christian, we can anticipate that we're going to go through difficult times through this world. And these times that we go through, it would be easy for us, and it is easy for us, and we often do it, we lose perspective during times of trial, tribulation, and trouble. When suffering occurs, we often put our eyes on the circumstances, the suffering, the tribulation, the trouble, the problem that we are experiencing. And by doing so, we lose the perspective that God wants us to retain specifically during that time. Jesus told us from the very beginning, He told His disciples in John 16.33, He says, These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But He says, Be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. And one of the fastest ways to abandon that peace that God gives us is by losing our perspective. And today I want to address address the two areas of perspective that we lose the quickest. The first is the perspective in believing that during that trial and tribulation that we are going through, that we are alone in doing so. Number one, that we are alone in doing so. The second perspective that we often lose is the aspect of hope. The aspect of hope. The hope that would sustain us we often abandon during our times of trial and tribulation because we've lost our perspective. We all do. We all have. We will, at one time or another. Like Peter being asked by the Lord to step out of the boat and to walk to Him on the waves of the sea and come to Jesus. And you know the story. That as long as Peter kept his eyes on the Lord, he walked above those waves. But the moment he took his eyes off of the Lord, 
and put his attention on the waves, he began to sink. And the great act of grace by, the, by our Lord and Savior is that Jesus reached down into the depths of that sea and pulled Peter up again. That's the perspective that we lose during times of trial and tribulation. I believe it is these two perspectives that Paul addresses within these five verses of Romans. Romans is a phenomenal book. If you haven't read it, I encourage you to do so. We'll wait. But looking at these five verses, it is a book of therefores. And what do I mean by that? It's a book of logic that Paul shares with all of us this incredible idea of justification in and through Jesus Christ by faith. And so the book is intrinsically linked together, chapter by chapter, with the words, therefore, as we find here in verse 1. And in chapters 3 and 4, Paul wants us to know how it is possible that we have been justified before God the Father in and through Jesus Christ. I'll be honest, I think many American Christians, we just take it for granted. I believe in Jesus and now I'm saved and now I'm going to heaven. I don't really care how it all works, I just need to know that I've got my fire insurance and that when I die I will be in eternity with God. But Paul wanted it to be explicitly understood how God was able to do this on our behalf through the person, His Son, Jesus Christ. So let me encourage you to read the book of Romans when you have an opportunity to do so. But after Paul explained justification in chapters 3 and 4, he concludes by saying that within this justification, and notice what he says, Therefore, and of course that leads back to everything that we've read up, that they would have read up until that point. Notice he says, having been justified. It's past tense. It's something that has been accomplished in and through Jesus Christ and appropriated by faith in the life of the individual. We would love to believe that in some way, somehow, we merited favor from God. We were just too cute to resist. Or we brought certain skills and uh, attributes to the table that God just had to save us for the purposes of furthering His kingdom. We would love to take some ounce of credit for the salvation in which we have received. And by doing so, we would negate the whole foundation and understanding of this incredible concept called grace. No, God didn't select the best. He selected the foolish things of this world to confound the wise. Even Paul the Apostle, one of the most educated of all the apostles, saw everything that he had accomplished prior to his coming to Jesus Christ as dung, something he had to get past and get beyond before he could fully serve Christ in the capacity in which Christ was calling him to do. However, though, let me, not, let me say this. God may have prepared you in, uh, in means prior to you coming to Him to serve Him in the way that you are today. However, though, please understand that it was God who put you in those positions prior to this point that now are using those things for His glory. But you have been justified by faith. What does it mean to be justified? It means to be justified in his presence. 
Meaning that you have the ability as a fallen human being endowed with sin to stand before a holy God. It's one of those things that just couldn't be overlooked. But in and through Jesus Christ, a means has been made for you and I. That through Him, we can be justified before God. Meaning, we can be justified in His presence. We can come before Him. We can have a relationship with God the Father through Christ. Our sin has been dealt with in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And though practically I am still being sanctified, that is, moved from death to life, to darkness to light, as God is shaping me and conforming me into the image of Jesus Christ, and I am a continuous work in progress, not fulfilling that sanctification until I see God for all eternity. But in that process, there's a reality behind it. It's a theological reality of position. That position is is that when I come before God the Father in and through Jesus Christ, I have no business being there in and of myself. And when God sees me, He looks at me through Christ. Because if I stood alone at that moment, then my sin would separate me from God for all eternity. But though I am a work in progress here on this earth, positionally before God the Father, He sees me through Christ in the perfected position that He is bringing me into for all eternity. It's an incredible thing. That's why we have Christ, our great advocate, who is allowed to be our advocate on our behalf because He was our propitiation. These are big words, great for Scrabble, triple letter score, you'll dominate, and also look really smart. But these words allow us this justification. It allows us salvation. It allows us to once again be reconciled fallen man to holy God in and through the person of Jesus Christ. And because we have been justified, past tense, he's writing to believers, you and I, we now have the assurance that whatever we go through here in this world, we are not alone. This is so important to know because the moment that Satan can get you to believe and to embrace the idea that you are alone, apart from God, apart from everyone, is when he places you in one of the most vulnerable positions that you can be in. Divide and conquer is his strategy. It always has been. As he waited for Adam to be away as Eve was tempted at that moment. As Christ was separated in the wilderness when those temptations were leveled against Him and where Adam and Eve failed, Christ succeeded and was victorious. But being alone can be one of the scariest, most fearful positions an individual can be in. And I want to tell you here today that in Christ you are never alone. Let me go one step farther. In Christ, you have never been alone. 
Oh, you began to realize that God was with you that moment that you came to that saving grace, that that moment that you accepted Jesus Christ, that moment that new life began in you. Then you knew and realized that the presence of God was with you and that He would never leave you nor forsake you. Oh, but it began before that. Before you were born, God knew you. Before you were conceived, God knew you. Before the foundations of the world, God knew you. He knew you the whole time. And He was there, knowing that moment that you would turn to Him and reach out and cry out to Him. You were never alone. And now that you are with Him today, He will never leave you nor forsake you. Every step that we take through this world, God is with us. We are never alone. And the moment we step out of this world and into eternity, we are going to be in His presence for all eternity and we will never be alone. A practical reality and truth being realized at that moment that we step out of this world and into the next. And notice what he says here. Having been justified by faith, this is how it is embraced. It is not what we do. It is not, we do not earn it. We do not merit it. It has been given to us. We embrace it by faith. And in so doing, by simply believing what Jesus Christ has done for us, validating that sacrifice with the resurrection on the third day. Notice what Paul writes next. He says, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible says that before we came to the Lord, we were at enmity with Him. And that's hard to imagine because at the same time, those who are His, He knew and predestined from before the foundations of the world. How all that works? Well, write it down in your book and as soon as you get before God, you can ask Him. I like what D.L. Moody said. He said, God save the elect and elect some more. It's that simple. Of course, Moody's simplicity, I think, was one of his greatest characteristics. But Paul is making it abundantly clear that the moment that we received Christ as our Savior, that enmity was dissipated, and now we became a child of God. We were loved And we have been adopted into the family of God through Jesus Christ. No longer at enmity with Him. Now why this is important theologically is for this reason. That before we can have the peace of God, we must first have peace with God. And that's so important to understand. We must have peace with God through Jesus Christ if we are going to receive the peace of God to guard our hearts and mind in times such as this. But this peace that we have through Jesus Christ with God translates to peace that God provides for us, the peace of God. Verse 2, notice how he then continues to explain, through whom we also have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. 
Notice that all three aspects of our existence is covered in these five verses. Past, present, and future. It's a totality of a relationship with God in which we have. And in that totality, we should know and understand that even though we experience trials, troubles, tribulations, difficulties, sufferings, the story has already been written. The poem is already finished because he who began a good work in you is faithful to complete it. That when we are weak, he is strong. When we are faithless, he is faithful. But this access that Paul tells us about reminds us of the book of Esther. When Esther was confronted with the, with the uh, dilemma of having to intercede on behalf of the Jewish people. And to do so, she had to go before her husband, the king, but she just couldn't, you know, swander into the uh, throne room unannounced and uninvited. She was literally taking her life into her own hands by doing so. But she knew that it was critical for her to do so. So she went in before the king to petition and to intercede on behalf of the Jewish people, not knowing if the king would lower his scepter to her or not. But he showed her that grace to access his throne room, to come before him. But for you and I, we don't have to guess. We don't have to wonder. We don't have to be fearful. For God has opened that door wide in and through the person of Jesus Christ for us. As the writer of Hebrews wrote, he said this in Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin. In verse 16, notice this. Let us therefore come boldly into the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. One Jewish scholar wrote this about this word, boldly. He says that the Hebrews who read this most likely would have equated this scenario, this picture in their mind when reading it. A child running in and jumping on dad's lap, he wrote. Boldly, the throne room of God is accessible to you and I. At any time of the day or night, we don't have to wait in line. We don't have to call a call center and then be put on hold for 30 minutes to ask a question that takes five seconds. We don't have to wonder if we'll get an automated service when we pray or if we'll actually get to talk to a live body at some point in the duration of the phone call. Our prayers, when we go before God in prayer, we are speaking to God the Father directly in and through the person of Jesus Christ. And that's why we're praying this Wednesday. We may be a small church in Algonquin, but this Wednesday we're going to enter into the presence of God together. And we stand there, not in the merits of our doing and, and our, our, our goodness and our own personal self-righteousness. 
We stand there in the grace of God that has been given to us in and through Christ, and we simply embrace it by faith. And at that moment, we can rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. That word hope means a dynamic confidence in God. What about God specifically? His character. Knowing who He is. And we learn who He is by reading His Word from Genesis to Revelation. By seeing Him in the perfect depicted uh, characteristics found in the person of Jesus Christ. If you've seen Me, you've seen the Father, He said to the apostles. This glory is not just some... uh, you know, apparition around him. It is absolutely the context of his character, knowing who he is, knowing that that work that he has started in you, he was faithful, he will be faithful to complete, knowing that he is the author and the finisher of our faith. He began it and he will conclude it. And this hope leads us, knowing the person of God, intimately and personally, in and through Christ. Devotions for the Christian is not an option, it's a necessity. Spending time in God's Word personally, privately, individually, each and every day is a necessity for a healthy Christian walk. Accompany that devotional time with prayer, praying before you enter into God's Word. And then after coming through God's Word and that time you set aside to just think about Him and to set your mind upon Him and your eyes upon Him and your heart upon Him and your mind upon Him, it's afterwards then you pray again saying, Lord, let me learn all that there is to learn about you in and through your Word. Devotionals are not an option. It's a necessity. And let me encourage you as your pastor this morning, that in those private times with the Lord can be some of the greatest growing experiences in your Christian faith. Meeting Him there personally. Allowing Him to speak to your heart and mind through His Word. One of the things that's always baffled me is that when people begin to read God's Word, they're saying, you know, I I just don't know where to start. You know, and being a pastor, I I read somewhere I have to be tactful, patient, and kind. But I, I always wanted to say, when you buy a book or when you go to the library, do you ever check that book out from the librarian and ask him or her, where do I start reading this book? They would probably take the book from you and say, you're not worthy of the book. And so I often encourage people, start at the beginning. Because if you can get past Genesis 1-1 and believe it, everything else is cake. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, period. It kind of sets the context for everything that follows later. And we here at Calvary believe that God created everything in six days and rested on the seventh and had Lumel Nadis. That's, that's in the book of First Eric, right after the book of First Opinions. But believing that allows me to embrace everything after that. It allows me to believe everything after that. Starting with that simple fact 
Think of the confusion that has been introduced in our world when we moved away from that simple belief. How God did it, I don't know. He simply spoke things into creation. But that doesn't make sense. How could God ever create anything in six days? How could He create all of this in six days, they say? Thinking that they've stumped me in some way. I look at them and simply say to them, I'm surprised it took them that long. He could have just said, let it all be. And it all good. And that should be the end of it, right? The problem isn't with God. The problem is our faith in God and what He's capable of doing. But why don't you start at the beginning and learn about God? And yes, you're going to get to books like Leviticus and think you're going down a dry water slide. But you learn the holiness of God. But not only that, you learn about the atonement that Jesus Christ satisfied at the cross. You learn about the history of God interacting with the nation of Israel prior to the coming of Jesus Christ. You learn about the heart of God pleading with His people. Why don't you just believe me? Why don't you just follow me and I'll bless you? Why would you sin? Why would you die? It's unnecessary. And all the more you appreciate those words as Jesus left Jerusalem after that rejection of Him and He wept over Jerusalem and said they weren't willing to come to me. You understand the heart of God at that moment by understanding the Old Testament. But in and through it all, as we spend that time with God, something happens within our hearts and mind. And Jesus spoke about this in John 14, 27. He says, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. And he says, Let your heart not be troubled, neither let it be afraid. To have peace in this world, it's, it's also uh, associated with having happiness in this world. They're both obtained the same way, unfortunately. All the plates have to be spinning perfectly in a person's life to obtain this peace from the world. To obtain happiness from the world. But how realistic is that? To have all your plates spinning perfectly. To allow for that happiness. To obtain it and then to try to maintain it. The peace of the world is just like that. We have to have all our plates spinning perfectly to obtain that peace and to maintain that peace. But Jesus says, the peace that I give you is not like that of the world. The joy that I give you is not like the happiness of the world. It's not predicated on your circumstances and experiences. It's predicated on me. Completely different. Our circumstances, though they may change, will not have to necessarily change the peace that we experience and the joy that we experience in Christ. Knowing that all of this is working together for good in us who love Him and are called according to His purpose. The plan that He had for us started from the founda- before the foundations of the world in Romans 8.30 when He says, Moreover, whom He, Paul writing, that is God, predestined, these He also called. Whom He called, these He also justified. And whom He justified, these He will also glorify. So not only are you not alone, you've never been alone. 
But what you are experiencing, God is walking through with you each and every step of the way. And that has purpose. The experience that you're going through, the difficulty, the trial, the tribulation, has purpose to it. And ultimately, He will finish the work that He started in you. And because of that, we can segue beautifully into the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. You know, it has been said over and over again, and I don't know who said it initially, But an individual can live 40 days without food, three days without water, eight minutes without air, but they conclude that an individual can only live one second without hope. And if Satan can lead us to believe that we're alone in our trials and tribulations, the vulnerability has already been set for the hope to dissipate that may be carried in our hearts. But knowing that God is working out all of these things and that He is with us and that we are never alone generates a hope within us that is immovable by the circumstances in which we experience in our life. Notice with me verse 3. And not only that, but we glory in tribulation. Now this word glory here is different than the word glory that we previously read where we talked about the glory constituting the total nature and character of God. But here the word glory in the uh, Greek means to express an unusual high degree of confidence in someone or something being exceptionally noteworthy. Meaning that the rejoicing that we have in the hope that we obtain, in the glory of God, His person, and His character. Knowing that not only that, but we also glory, meaning we have confidence due to the fact of who God is, what His character is, and that He is you know, unchangeable. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's consistent. The way he interacts with the people of the New Testament is the way he interacts with you and I today. It's the same. We can be confident. This glory has also been translated in English Bibles as the word boasting. Meaning I can be confident that what I am experiencing is leading to my betterment. That God is using it to develop me. The word tribulation there in the Greek... Uh, is a word that you know. also we pull from the Latin. The English word is pulled from the Latin. And the Latin word is tribulum. And a tribulum was a, wood piece, a large piece of wood that had uh, iron spikes on the bottom of it. And what they did is they dragged this piece of wood, this large piece of wood with those spikes, across a threshing floor. Of course, a threshing floor is where they separated the wheat from the chaff, and this assisted them and helped them do that more effectively. Knowing that the parallel, the correlation with that understanding of the word would would lead the individual to discover that the tribulation that they go through, whatever form it may come in, whatever difficulty that they're experiencing, whatever suffering they're occurring, is separating within them the wheat from the shaft. It is the same type of concept that is used in the word testing in the New Testament, 
where it is a metallurgy term where gold is heated up to a certain temperature and the dross, the uh, impurities are removed from the top of it until the gold is so pure that the one working with it can see his reflection or her reflection within it, knowing that the gold then is in a state of purification. These trials and tribulations are doing the same thing in our life. It's removing the shaft. It is removing the dross from our life. And what we're going to end up with is the perfect reflection of God conforming into the image of Jesus Christ. And because we have this confident confidence, we can glory in it, but it also leads to hope. Notice with me here in our text. Paul once again introduces a literary term called a sortie. And a sortie is a list of virtues or characteristics. And when listed in this dynamic, in this fashion, the last one is the ultimate goal. Okay? So notice the progression in verse 3. Knowing that we also glory in tribulation, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, character, hope. That's the goal. To be able to obtain and maintain and to retain hope in our time of difficulties and trials. How do we do that? By letting this process play out. This tribulation brings us to a perseverance. It means a steady endurance. It allows us to go the distance. It's toughening us up. It's allowing us to push forward and keep moving forward in our walk and relationship with Jesus Christ. Each and every tribulation and trial that we experience or testing that occurs brings about further endurance in the life of the individual believer, pushing ourselves through and conforming us into the image of Jesus Christ. That perseverance leads to character, and that character is the character development that Christ desires desires to pull from you. It is that same examination, that testing, to show the genuineness of the character within us to allow us to become the men and women of God God has called us to become. And seeing that work within us leads us to hope. Now, our first interaction with the word hope was in the confidence that we have in the character of God. This hope is produced within us knowing that what we are going through has an end goal in mind. It has a purpose in mind for us. God is using it, as Peter told us, that he brings about and allows these things to occur as need be, for our betterment, for our development as Christians, again, bringing us into the image of Jesus Christ. And it all began with our justification. And now, as we are presently going through the difficulties that we are, we can be hopeful because God is working in you. Three chapters later, Paul will write it like this. Let me read it to you. In Romans 8, 28 through 30, which we probably are all familiar with, notice that what we have just said is all encompassed in these three verses. 
And we know that all things work together for good. That's a very subjective word for many. Many define that word as they see fit to do so. Self-determining what may be good for them. But God clarifies what that good is in verse 29. But we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose, for whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed. This is the good. To be conformed to the image of His Son. That He might be the firstborn among many brethren. Notice, and then He clarifies the work. Moreover, that whom He's predestined, these He's also called. Whom He called, these He also justified. In whom He justified, these He also glorified. Meaning that if you are in Christ, Christ is going to see it through. God is going to see it through in your life. This is the hope that we have. It allows us to weather the storms that we may be experiencing at the moment. That somehow, some way, by the sovereignty, the grace of God, the love of God, the majesty of God, that these circumstances, though trying and difficult from my perspective, and on this side of heaven, I don't fully understand what I'm experiencing. I can't connect the dots. I can't see the end goal from where I'm at. He does. Because as we have said numerous times in this series, God is more concerned about your eternal glory than your temporal comfort. He's preparing you to be with Him for all eternity. To hear those words, well done, thou good and faithful servant, Enter into the joy of your Lord. But from our perspective, we often don't see that. Like the example of that pastor and his wife who went and saw the tapestry uh, maker, and he went and they were viewing the, the uh, artisan uh, making the tapestry within the loom, but they were sitting on the side where they saw the rough and ragged edges and nothing seemed to make sense and it didn't look very pleasing and aesthetic and it, you know, it just looked like, well, maybe he was just having an off day, you know. But then the guy who was leading the tour said, well, don't, don't, don't judge it yet and took the pastor and his wife to the other side And there was the tapestry that was just gorgeous to behold. See, on our side of heaven, we see the ragged edges. We see the rough occurrences. We see the threads of our life interacting, and it doesn't seem to be making any sense from our personal perspective. But God sees it from the other side. And when it's all said and done, we will see it from the other side also. And we will be so thankful at that moment. There's no better example than that of the cross, is there? Oh, how that was so misunderstood from everybody who was witnessing the crucifixion at that moment. It didn't seem like anybody really got it except the thief on the cross next to him. They were jeering, they were mocking, they were ridiculing Jesus Christ, but the fabric of the tapestry was rough on this side. It was a 33-year-old man who had been beaten and wounded and thorns placed upon his head, nailed to the cross, bleeding, suffering, dying, making all these promises that seemed to have now failed. 
And yet within it all, the tapestry of God looking from the other side was the atonement of those who are His. So let us not be quick to judge, but also let us not in our times of trial and trouble abandon those things that we know to be true for those things we don't know to be true. I like what Warren Worsby wrote when he said this. He says, Peace with God takes care of the past. He will no longer hold our sins against us. Access to God takes care of the present. We can come to Him at any time for help when we need. Hope of the glory of God takes care of the future. One day we shall share in His glory with Him for all eternity. And notice how Paul ends it in verse 5. And he says, The hope that we have, the hope that is derived from the tribulation and the perseverance and the character, this hope does not disappoint, he says, because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Later, Paul would say it this way, in Romans 8, 35-39, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, For your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loves us. Notice the dual perspective. On one side, it looks like we are counted sheep for slaughter. On the other side, yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor power, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, or any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing will separate you from the love of God. In, all th- in these five verses, we have the three pillars of Christianity, faith, hope, and love. And as His children, we can be more confident than ever that the door to the throne room is open to us and we can go boldly in before Abba, Father, our God, and we can make our petitions and our supplications and our intercessions known and we can find help and grace in our time of need. So don't lose your perspective. You are never alone. And you always have hope in Jesus Christ.